Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good. It's, it's super hot and uh, I'm getting excited to go to Bitblock Boom in Dallas. I'm heading over there tomorrow and it is the beginning of my epic road trip. Uh, so I'm just, I'm trying to brace myself. I got an entire month where I'm not going to spend one weekend in SF. I'm just going to be on the road the entire time. Dude, we're both going to be in Tel Aviv, separated by one day. It's fucking crazy. So I booked, my, Tel Aviv? I booked my flight uh, for the 13th at like 3 o'clock, I think. Are you going to be in before before that? If I, if I do, I'll have missed you by like hours. I might, I might be in in the early morning of the 14th. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah. So I'm going to scaling Bitcoin over there. Um, not doing anything special, just attending and talking and networking. Uh, but mm-hmm. what are you doing in Tel Aviv? Uh, I'm speaking at Ethereal. Uh, I'm speaking about Ether as money and uh, Ethereum as a global finance platform that runs on ETH, uh, which I'm actually super honored to talk about. So. Uh, you guys can catch that video. I'm sure there'll be a video up. I'm definitely going to be sharing it. Um, pretty excited. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Uh, and speaking of ETH, we had an Ethereum 2 developer on the podcast, Alex Stokes. Uh, super nice guy and super intelligent dude. We definitely held his feet to the fire. Both David and I uh, were giving him hard questions. I felt like it was almost like a good guy, bad guy, or good cop, bad cop. Uh, type of a scenario where David was asking hard ETH questions that were kind of positive, and then mm-hmm. I was just trying to throw curveballs at him. Uh, but he he was a good sport, and he explained everything really like thoroughly and uh, and very well. So I learned a lot, and I think you guys will too. Yeah, he he did a really good job uh, going very methodically and explaining explaining the things that you need to know before his answers make sense. Uh, and so like providing context. So he did a really good job taking that burden off of us. Um, so we, we really worked the guy actually. He, and so I pass off to Alex for, for being a good sport um, and, and answering everything to its fullest extent. Um, and, and yeah, so we got into some pretty technical uh, Ethereum uh, dev stuff. And then we got into some uh, Bitcoiner, type questions about like how ethereum might survive in an adversarial ethereum 2 might survive in an adversarial environment um so really the full gamut here so definitely delivering on that what does a bitcoiner think of ethereum 2.0 vision uh true to the nature of pov crypto pod um yeah and thank you to uh all the bitcoiners that provided questions uh over twitter appreciate the help and appreciate the community guys thanks for listening And without further ado, Alex Stokes. Alex Stokes, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks. So Alex, will you first off give us a little intro uh, to yourself, your background and how you got into the world of crypto and then transition to explaining what you are specifically working on in Ethereum 2? Sure, yeah. Uh, okay, let's see. So crypto, I first heard about Bitcoin probably in like 2011 or something on the internet, uh, maybe like some Reddit thread or something. And at the time I like didn't really understand it. I was like, oh, like internet money sounds kind of cool. And I was like talking to some friends at the time and they're like, yeah, that sounds weird. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like they didn't understand any of it. And so I kind of just wrote it off, but like kept it on the back burner as sort of a hobby. And then, yeah, I mean, hobby is a good way to describe it. Probably for like the next couple of years, you know, like, of course, there was like different interests in uh, the crypto community in general with like Bitcoin at the time and like building up to now. Uh, Then Ethereum launched, what, 2015. And so that was super exciting. And like, I kind of through all these events just started looking closer and closer at this stuff. uh, Until probably like early 2017 or so, I was just like, kind of thinking about this all the time. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do now. Now it's like all I think about, uh, very happily so. So what was your background uh, before you got into crypto that uh, was relevant to becoming an, an ETH2 dev? Yeah, um, 
Good question. Uh, basically, I was working in tech before this. Uh, I like studied chemistry in school and decided I didn't want to like go pursue any further uh, work in the field of chemistry. So then I was like, well, computers are fun. I've always liked programming. Like, let's see what happens. A goes to B. I'm in tech now. Uh, and then I've, uh, yeah, just been working as an engineer for like some time. Um, and then, yeah, same thing with crypto. It just kind of devoured my, my mental space. Were you working for like any particular company or anything before you got, um, yeah, a handful of startups. Um, you probably not heard of any of them. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. So when, how did you get started with ETH2? Yeah. So another good question. Uh, how did I get started with ETH2? I think the earliest bit was, uh, looking at Casper FFG, uh, which we'll probably get into a little bit later, but essentially the work that was represented by EIP 1011 was to basically add this proof of stake mechanism on top of the proof of work chain. And, uh, I was just generally looking to see how I could help, uh, with Ethereum at the time and this was happening and proof of stake is really cool and interesting. So I was looking at that, uh, concretely, I was doing some work on uh, part of the smart contracts there. So like one of them was basically, there's going to be a way where you could basically submit a signature and the signature scheme could be abstract in the sense of like you pick, you just point to a smart contract and that will verify your signatures as a Casper validator. And so there is a contract written in, let's see, so I think it was in Serpent at the time. And then I just did some work there to sort of translate that to Viper, uh, which is a funny story because I basically had to go below the Viper front end to like the sort of intermediate uh, bytecode there because Viper doesn't let you do some of the things that you could do in Serpent. I can't hear you if you're saying anything. Oh, okay. We just don't know what that means, <laughs> but our listeners will. Okay. I mean, I can go into more detail. Um, basically, here, let me take a step back. Um, yeah, I was working on the Casper contract. Uh, proof of stake is super interesting. And that's how I started getting more and more involved with Ethereum. Uh, sort of more than just crypto generally. Now, are you part of an implementation team? Yeah, so I'm spending a lot of time working on Trinity, which is the Ethereum Foundation-sponsored Python implementation. So I've been working on the ETH2 implementation of that. Alex, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about like what is happening with all these different implementations? Like, Just give us the background. Sure. So depending on who you talk to, we've decided that the current Ethereum is not fast enough. So we want to make it faster. And this is when you hear about scalability and like transaction throughput and all this stuff. So uh, the way that we're going to do that is, well, we, we tried a number of things in terms of improving the current sort of uh, the current Ethereum system. I'll refer to that as like maybe the proof of work chain or like current mainnet or like the existing chain, what we have today. When you think of Ethereum, like this is what we're talking about. So yeah, that is not fast enough. We want to improve it in a number of ways. There are some attempts made to basically improve it within the system. And that's what I meant with this like Casper contract stuff, where you could also imagine uh, like a sharding contract. And sharding is this technique which we can get into more detail about, but it's a way to scale blockchains and their throughput. So anyways, there are some attempts made to like make the existing thing better. And for a number of like technical reasons, that just wasn't going to be nice and pan out well. So it was decided to essentially start from scratch. This is Ethereum 2.0. It's this attempt to like start from scratch. Uh, it's a whole new system, which brings its own challenges in terms of like, you know, now there's two things, like which is which, what does the community follow, like all this stuff, uh, which again, we can get into more of that. but. Basically, there's a, there's a whole new thing. The, the headline features to ETH2.0. Uh, one will be the sharding thing, which is instead of having one blockchain, you now have, let's say, a thousand blockchains, and they all work together in this one system. So now you have, say, a thousand times the throughput. And then you have uh, Casper, so moving from a proof of work consensus to a proof of state consensus. So to answer your question, this is uh, this huge new effort to like build this new system out. And uh, it's been going really well. There's like nine or 10, maybe 11 different client teams all over the world who are all working to build independent implementations of this new protocol. Uh, very much like how in Ethereum today, we have like Gather Parity as implementations. Uh, let's see, Pantheon, there's a Java implementation. 
Uh, I think it's Pantheon. Either way, um, there's a number of them today. And uh, yeah, similarly, there's a number of ETH2 implementations. So one of them is Trinity, which I mentioned. Is there like a reference implementation? And do you think, like, how do you think the, like, do you think it's, like one implementation is going to kind of be the one that gets like 50, 60, 70% of the nodes. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So it's definitely kind of like, um, we can call it design goal, like wish essentially. Uh, it would be very, very nice uh, for the decentralization of the network in terms of sort of mind share. If there's like a couple like well-used implementations, not just like one, that's the primary one, right? Um, whereas like today on Ethereum, like the majority client is Geth, and I think it's the majority by like a large margin. Parity then makes up most of the rest of that, right? So we, we would hope for like a more equal distribution of maybe say three clients would be like a great place to start. And uh, I think we're definitely on track for that, just given how much activity there's been so far. What would you say are the standout clients at the moment? Like who do you, because uh, the way I've had this described to me, it's, it's kind of like a race. Like some, some implementations are moving, teams are, are moving faster than others. Who are in the lead? That's a good question. Uh, lead, I think is hard. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see. Because like a lot of it, right, is like, so, so generally how this process has been unfolding is that there's been like a research team within the EF that has been guiding sort of the protocol development uh, to date in terms of researching what the protocol will be and how it will unfold. And so that has only just become sort of frozen in terms of like, here's a spec anyone can implement right. just a few months ago. Um, that being said, there were like a number of teams that were working sort of alongside that process. Uh, and so they, you know, had to deal with a lot of changing of the underlying spec as they were going along, but then also had more time to develop, right? So like Prism has been around for a while, Lighthouse has been around for a while. Um, not to call those two out in particular, but, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's like a huge effort. And like, I, I really can't say that like some teams are in the lead and some teams aren't. Uh, everyone seems honestly about the same place, uh, at least in terms of like core functionality, where it will be interesting, right, is like where these clients will differentiate is like on sort of these more auxiliary features, like how nice is your like op story or your like monitoring story, your metrics, how nice is your like UX around a validator client, all these uh, sort of things more on the periphery, things you don't see when you go to like the specs repo, for example, uh, and that'll probably in the long term decide like, okay, when we really run these clients, like what's what's going on? Sure, sure. And, and so what are you specifically working on with the Trinity uh, team? Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're implementing the whole node. Uh, it's in Python, uh, which so the idea of Python is it's like a programming language, like every, every other client is generally in a different programming language. Ours is in Python. The way that Python is implemented, it just happens to be a lot slower than some of these other languages you might have heard of, like Rust or Go, uh, which brings its own challenges. Uh, but the trade-off there is it's actually like many more people find it very readable as a language. So like a lot of people will use, for example, the existing Trinity client as sort of a reference in terms of understanding like, okay, uh, I want to understand Ethereum better. I tried the yellow paper and like, that's just crazy. So like, where can I learn what's actually happening? Uh, a lot of people will go to the Trinity code base for ETH1 today and start there. Um, so similarly, we have like another sort of with ETH2 with Trinity where it's like we want, you know, hopefully we don't do anything too crazy to like get the performance we need and can keep it kind of readable to serve as this reference. So talking about these different implementations, how well are they kind of like working together right now? Um, I've heard you could call it FUD, but that all these implementations aren't actually working together and that you know, if they can't agree what Ethereum is, like, you know, where where do you know or, you know, how do you kind of get on the same page? Totally. So there's like different senses of the word working together that you were just touching on. Um, one of them is sort of, are we all aligned on like what we're doing sort of at a macro level? And that's very much true. Uh, so there's no FUD there. There's a sort of more coarse sense or maybe more fine sense. There's like another sense in which it's like, can our clients actually talk to each other? Right. Uh, and so again, yeah, we're not, we're not quite at that point. Uh, Different client teams have independently had their own sort of test nets, you know, very small with test nets, more experiments, uh, but they've had those for a couple months now. 
And actually in September, the plan is to have like all of us to come together and like bang out sort of a cross client test net, which will be super exciting. Uh, hopefully by DevCon, we have some actual test net that's longstanding and people, anyone can like join and come play with. And so to my knowledge, Alex, you are working on uh, the finality gadget for Ethereum 2. Is that right? At least for your implementation? Mm, yeah, yeah. So uh, spending a lot of time on Trinity and like moving along ETH2 however I can, right? And so part of that was like, we have this idea of this finality gadget. And so it just seemed that no one, people wanted this the thing to happen, but no one was really picking it up and like moving it along. And so I stepped in and did that. Okay, so that's a side a parallel to your work with Trinity. Okay, can you explain what a gadget is uh, before we go into explaining what the finality gadget is? Sure. So I think independently, the gadget doesn't really have a lot of meaning. Uh, when we say finality gadget, we're talking about some sort of device, which I kind of use uh, abstractly, but it's like something to provide this other thing called finality. So, uh, yeah, I guess like to answer your question, when you hear that, what you should think is that we're going to have like some scheme to, uh, to provide this thing called finality. And, and how does the finality gadget provide finality? Right. So the finality gadget is using this proof of stake process on, uh, part of this new system, uh, against the existing proof of work chain, maybe taking a step back. Uh, ETH 2.0 is, like we've said, is this like huge undertaking, right? So in order to like, you know, increase our chances of success, we're, we're sort of rolling it out in phases. You've probably heard of like these phases, right? So the first one would be phase zero. It's zero indexed because programmers like that. So we have phase zero. And phase zero is very much a completely new separate blockchain. It's called the beacon chain. And this beacon bit refers to uh, what's called a random beacon, which is like a cryptographic term for like a random number gener generator. Uh, that's the detail very much. But either way, there's this new blockchain called the beacon chain. And this is where validators in the new system kind of organize their efforts. And then what will happen down the line in phases one and two, that's where uh, sort of the system is all sort of coordinated on this beacon chain. So as part of the beacon chain, right, it's a blockchain, it has its own consensus, that's where this Casper proof of stake consensus comes in. So now we have proof of stake playing out on this new blockchain. Uh, in particular, like I said, Casper. So now if you look at Casper, there's a property to Casper that essentially what validators are doing is, you know, they have some like stake at risk so that they have some weight in the system. They then essentially are like attesting or like voting on which block they think is the most canonical block at the time. Uh, so they do this, and then once there's like a majority, say like two-thirds of validators all agree on a thing, then we have some rules, and these rules give us this property of finality. And basically it says that, you know, you can't have a violation of this consensus without burning, say, like more than a third of the stake at risk. And so this is where we get like the economic security that drives like proof of stake and makes sure that we have a decentralized blockchain that still comes to consensus on something, right? Right, we have Casper. We have finality, uh, which again is just this rule that basically says that if everyone's following the protocol and people are participating and playing along, it happens that there's like this huge sort of penalty that has to be paid before this invariant can be broken. Uh, we now want to take that property and apply it to the Ethereum system of today. So maybe before I go into that, does that all kind of make sense or should I revisit something? Yes, yes yeah, totally. And, and how fast is finality with a, a functioning gadget? How, how, like how many blocks is that? Sure. So finality is happening on the beacon chain independent of the finality gadget, which I think is an important point. Okay. So you have finality happening on the beacon chain, uh, sort of in the best case, it'll take, let's say two epochs. Uh, an epoch is, I'm getting into a bunch of like protocol terms, but basically an epoch is like 64 slots. The slot is six seconds. So, okay, what that actually means is every 12 minutes, we'd expect to finalize a new block, let's say. Okay, and our, our listeners are actually pretty technical. Um, me and Christian aren't, but our, our listeners will definitely be able to keep up with you so far. <laughs> Great, so, so uh, um, yeah, okay. and so wait, well, I think I just made a mistake then uh, because we should have finality every six minutes, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> Basically every epoch, so it'll, it'll build on top of itself. 
so then you end up with uh, every six minutes, not 12 minutes. And that's important for like some cross shard stuff that I think we'll get to later. Yeah, definitely. Cross shard. Yeah, definitely want to talk about, about that. Um, so so let's define the final, finality gadget a little bit more. So that is not relevant to Ethereum 2, right? It's just for Ethereum 1? Ethereum it's completely 1. independent, and it's done that way kind of by design, right? I mean, the more that we can keep these systems separate and uncoupled, mm -hmm. especially before we've like proven out this new thing, that's definitely the route we want to take. So yeah, very much uh, you have finality happening on the beacon chain independence. And that's how we'll start at the launch, right? Is that, uh, you know, the beacon chain will go and we'll have validators and it'll all be fun and games. Uh, and the current system will just kind of be over here by itself. So just to clarify a little bit, what the, the current goal right now is building a beacon chain that has finality every six minutes and then using that finality on eth1 or the proof of work blockchain to achieve what something is that correct am i am i off there right no yeah yeah so with the finality gadget then what we're saying is uh we're using this okay so there, there's a we'll take another step back uh <laughs> along with this happening uh there's a question of like how do validators get into the new system right and so the way that that happens is that they actually make a deposit on the existing uh, Ethereum chain today to a smart contract. And that basically then takes that ETH, locks it up, and then produces a proof that there's this deposit made that can then be used on the new chain, the speaking chain. So in order for that to work, again, like trustlessly, so to speak, uh, it turns out that beacon chain is in some sense a light client of the existing chain, right? Because it needs to know the state of the smart contract. So in order to do that, there's like a sort of part of being a validator is you also have to submit updates to the smart contract as you make blocks. And there's like some incentives in place where you basically like have to do this to like make valid blocks. So then on the beacon chain, the state of this deposit contract is being updated over time, which is great. Uh, that then as part of that data, you have a block hash from the existing chain that ends up in a beacon chain block, okay? And so then as the beacon chain is finalized, you finalize those block hashes successively. As you, as you finalize these block hashes, you can then say that this block on the Ethereum chain uh, is finalized. Sorry, I'm gesturing my hands a lot and it's not in the frame. No, it would be- No, that's, yeah. that's definitely helpful for sure. Next yeah, time we'll do this in front of a whiteboard so, or something so I can draw <laughs> things out. <laughs> Yeah, we got to get some software so you can just screen share for the YouTube yeah. listeners. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you pretty much just described how the finality gadget. Uh, yeah. Yep. So at a high level, that's like the basic idea is that uh, independent of ETH1, you have finality happening. Uh, and this is where ETH1 then comes in is that validators then have to update the state of this ETH1 smart contract on the ETH2 chain. And that's how validators enter the system. So then as the beacon chain, this new chain on the two system is finalizing, then you finalize that new smart contract data. And like part of that is also just a block hash. So you can say, okay, you know, block at height, wherever is not finalized. So it's transferring some of Ethereum 2's, it's transferring the beacon chain security properties to the ETH1 chain. Exactly, yep. So you okay. then are sharing security between the validator set of the beacon chain with you can think of it as like the miners or even users of the existing Ethereum chain. Uh, and that gets to like, wow, you may want this stuff in the first place is because you can have this shared security. You could then imagine that like, you don't need to uh, sort of spend as much on security on existing chain. This is where we get into like issuance reduction. Cause the way we do that today is primarily through like paying miners, right? We inflate the coin supply with the block rewards. We can reduce that uh, if we have this this economic security over here. Right, that's exactly the transition I wanted to make. So awesome, thank you for doing that. So that's what you're getting at is that the, the we're leveraging uh, proof of stake, and with this uh, finality, quicker finality, we're actually able to pay less for security, which is where Ethereum 2.0 gets its ultra low issuance. Is that correct? Overall, we can pay for less security between the two systems. Mm -hmm. And we could then use that to lower the amount we're paying on the, the 1.0 chain. Right, right. 
Go ahead. So how do you know what is enough security? That's a great question. <laughs> I think everyone wants to know that. <laughs> um, so, okay, let's think about this. At any point in time, I want to be spending enough on my blockchain security such that if someone tries to attack, they fail, right? Then the question is like, what is that number? Well, who's trying to attack at any given time? I don't know. Um, so it's very tricky, especially with proof of work, because like, well, you can try to back into like, okay, like, there are these like, you know, ASIC producers and they have like this throughput that we know of. And so there's like maybe this much total hash power. And we know that like, you know, the mining pools that are the ones that we like, the honest ones, so to speak, like they can, they have this much to supply. There, you know, there's a calculation you can run through, but basically it, it's a little tricky to say, right? Um, other than what I said before, which is that you want enough to like def defend against an attack. But the question is like, well, okay, what kind of attacks are there? Like, what, what's the magnitude of the attack? Like, we don't really know. Um, it seems like generally, like, I, I mean, really pretty much anyone's take to this so far has just been as much as possible, right? Um, yeah. So one cool thing about proof of stake, just to like throw this in here, is that you can actually have a much better idea of who's attacking the system. And if sort of a, even a minority of the community wants to, they can actually sort of coordinate a soft fork to get rid of the attacking stake. Uh, and this is something you can't do in proof of work because like you just, at most you can like retool your ASIC algorithm, right? Or your proof of work algorithm and then make those ASICs that are attacking you like not applicable, but then if they're sufficiently funded, they'll just buy more ASICs, right? And come back and attack you again. With proof of stake, you can actually like burn the attacking capital in this way. And again, it's all like cryptographically, cryptographically linked as to like who's doing what. Um, at least for a good scenario, a good portion of scenarios attack. And so from there, you can actually just delete them. Um, there's like a nice quote, I think like Vlad Zemfir, who's in the Ethereum community, said this originally with like proof of stake with a 51% quote unquote attack on proof of stake. It's uh, basically as if your ASIC farm burns down with every attack because you can do that by deleting the capital, right? Whereas with uh, proof of work, that's, that's not the case. What I think is trickier with a proof of stake attack is the attack that you don't know is an attack. Um, I think that's, that's, that's trickier than like this outright attack um, that's like compared to a 51% on the Bitcoin blockchain. Sure, and I mean, you, you kind of have to like give specifics, but Assuming that we're thinking on the same page, what I would say is you're thinking that like there's like some sort of social layer attacks you could pull off where like maybe it's not clear like if there's a fork, which side of the fork you follow. And then it comes very much down to like, you know, which sort of values and the community around those values, like which resonate with you more and like, you know, ultimately like who do you decide to follow? So when talking about actually quantifying the difficulty of uh attacking the proof of stake chain that's actually a number that you can know that's a knowable number right because if finality is defined as at some point in time it takes you have to burn two-thirds of all staked ether and we know how much ether more than more than one-third more than one excuse me more than one-third yeah so it's like a two-thirds majority so if you have more than one-third you've lost the majority and so that's where the attack can start to come off yeah so you, you with eth 2.0 we can actually get a a number saying like it actually costs this much money to attack the chain. Right? Yeah, and so I actually did this. Let me just pull up the calculation. I did this a little while ago. And again, it depends on like sort of the assets at risk, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So like for instance, if the ETH price is fluctuating, then like your security margin will be fluctuating as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, but just to give you some flavor, uh, let's see. So. And again, it depends on total amount validating and everything, but just a somewhat sort of, you know, reasonable example is that in the new system, there'll be 10 million ETH uh, participating, which means that a successful attack would burn 3.3 million ETH, which again, back in May was over $500 million. So you essentially would have to be saying, okay, I have 500 million like US dollars and I essentially want to lose them all because what I do next will do something better for me, right? So then you like, it very much constrains the space of like, what something better is, if it has to be like, greater benefit than like $500 million to you, right? Sure. 
I think it's safe to say that with a lot of these like consensus mechanisms, I think Bitcoin, personally, I think proof of work is the only proven one. But with a lot of these, like it's most likely really, really expensive to like reroute the chain. Um, but I think what is more needs to be more uh, thought about is what are like social engineering attacks and what they, they look like. And is the chain safe from that? Because I think that's a much bigger threat than just like, let's burn money, let's burn ASICs, let's build a ton of infrastructure, or let's, you know, get a bunch of ETH and then try to like 51% attack for what? Bringing it back one block or whatever. Um, you know, it just like the incentives don't really make sense. So that's kind of my biggest concern with this idea of like proof of stake and social coordination. Like, it seems like proof of stake only really works with this kind of like ability to socially coordinate around and like, an attack or whatever you want to call it. I just think that that is a massive attack vector. Right. I mean, I think the picture is not as clear cut with proof of work, right? Um, there's like very much a social system that hosts like a proof of work blockchain, right? And like, you have to trust the protocol and the ASICs and the algorithms and all this stuff. You could have, again, like, I think we needed like probably point to specific attacks to like say something really productive, but essentially it's like, um, like what concretely would happen in a proof of stake system? Like I try to fork the chain and I'm on Twitter being like, Hey, this is the real blockchain. Well, like who's going to listen to me? Like people who trust me. So that's what I want, I guess. <laughs> What's your interpretation like, of the Segwit2x part of Bitcoin's history? Uh, which part exactly that it happened or well, I guess it, I mean, it just it was proposed by uh, large stakeholders and uh, right. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I think this would be another example. And then the community on Twitter and so through social signaling, you know, saying no, and then it eventually getting canceled. Which, depending on which side of the debate you're on, I think is also could be seen as a social attack, right? Where it's like very much there's like a group of people like maybe it's you know the three of us we're trying to do something and if there's like a mob on twitter that like convinces everyone to do something else right if they sort of co-opt the brand then like our hands are tied um and i guess the point i'm just trying to make is i, I it's not as simple as like oh proof of work has this proof of stake doesn't have this uh because i think in both systems like i again like attacks of the social layer i think are Obviously, there's some overlap between the sort of this consensus, sort of pure consensus and social layer, but uh, you know, I think generally they're kind of distinct categories. I mean, you can have social attacks like in either way. So you think that you can have social attacks regardless of the consensus mechanism? Uh, Do you think the consensus mechanism makes one or the other more vulnerable? Again, it depends on what you're trying to do, right? Like, uh, one way you could look at this is with proof of work, I have sort of an objective proof. I don't have to trust anyone. And so in that way, uh, I just follow sort of the heaviest chain, right? The one with the most hash power. That's not necessarily the chain I like, right? So like, let's go back to the Binance hack a few months ago. Like they tried to roll back the chain too. Um, it didn't succeed, but like, allegedly some people were thinking about it at least. And this is very much, again, almost one of these social attacks on a proof of work system. Uh, I know this is a common complaint against proof of stake systems. Uh, and yeah, I guess I'm just saying it's not as clear cut as like, this will, proof of stake will never work just because like, of this like maybe greater social attack surface. Uh, I think generally people who are like, critics of proof of stake just don't wanna rise all blurry and like these things actually end up being and it, it does it's a double-edged sword right like it's um it's both a benefit and a cost because there's always trade-offs and so part of the lack of um part of it being a, a stake-based system and not a proof-of-work based system uh, enables us that ability to soft fork somebody's funds away from them uh, and so it, it and even the straight up ability to do that is already contributing to the security of the network just because it's a possible thing to do um it already adds to the resistance of the chain itself right so yeah again like as with everything like there are trade-offs uh sort of when when it comes when i have this debate with people like the immediate first thing is like they just have different security models right like proof of work is a thing 
proof of stake is a different thing. And if you don't like this, the different thing, like you don't really have to participate. No one's really making you do it. Uh, but there's also some benefits that maybe you can't get over here. Right. Totally. I, I'd like to get into some of our uh, follower questions, Christian, unless, unless and there's anything else about ETH 2.0 that we haven't covered yet. Um, might be a good time to transition to that. Yeah, no, that's fine. Let's go. All right. Um, is there a timeline for the finality gadget of ETH 1? Timeline. So the finality gadget, again, it's like this independent thing from ETH 2. Uh, and so, well, it's not necessarily totally independent, right? It's, it's predicated on ETH 2 happening, at least this first phase, phase 0. Uh, so generally, it looks like we'll have a phase 0 mainnet, you know, sometime in Q1 2020. From there, then, uh, you know, if we do our job properly, we be in this like working group that's working on the finality gadget, then we can kind of at least have uh, sort of the, in terms of having like the, the changes, the upgrades to the network ready, like that can be done pretty soon after phase zero has launched and we feel it's stable and is working, right? Um, they can kind of happen in parallel. And then it's just a matter then of like, okay, when can we like, actually hard fork the existing network to like have these upgrades and from pierre richard will fraud proofs and data availability proofs uh being developed for eth2 also be helpful for bitcoin litecoin and what are the trade-offs involved right uh so we're jumping around a bit which is fine uh what are fraud proofs and can you explain both of those yeah yeah so so for people listening uh Okay, so the question was, can we use fraud proofs and data availability proofs to help Bitcoin like clients? So let me just try to unpack it all. So like clients is uh, a different way to like interact with the blockchain that has, again, a different security model. And uh, what that means then is that you can not have to follow the complete blockchain in some sense, but you can still have cryptographic assurances that if I ask, you know, was my transaction included at this block in the Bitcoin blockchain, like, did it happen? Yes or no? Uh, and I, I can kind of figure that out. And from there, I can like live my life and, you know, for instance, have like a wallet on my phone or something like this. So the thing is, though, is that because like clients don't have the complete chain, right? They kind of have to depend in these ways uh, on someone else. And because we're in a decentralized system, we want to minimize our dependence or our trust on someone else. The way we minimize this trust is with cryptography, right? And that's where these like proofs come in. So uh, then the question was talking about uh, these fraud proofs and data availability proofs. And so again, these are cryptographic constructions. And what we hope to do with them is like, again, be able to like trustlessly understand or verify that some claim is true or false, right? Uh, depending on what we're talking about. So with fraud proofs, that's a question of uh, fraud in this sense, like the fraud proof is like, I think kind of a general construction, but a way that we'll look at using it in ETH2 is basically, uh, did you execute a valid state transition? So part of this is that in this sharded system where there's now a thousand blockchains, right? Uh, if everyone has to have every blockchain, then we have actually not scaled at all, right? We just now have a bunch of blockchains. We basically just made everyone do more work, right? And again, we're kind of already at the limit of where we're comfortable there. So like, that's not how we're going to scale a system. How we scale a system then is that instead of having everyone have every shard, everyone has a few shards and you basically rotate across the shards. Now, if I do this, I have to trust that the people who were before me on a shard were doing the right things and aren't trying to lie or trick me, right? And one way I can do this is by demanding uh, some, some type of proof, right? And that's, again, where these fraud proofs or data availability proofs come in. Uh, with fraud proofs, it's very much, okay, there was some claim made that uh, there's a state transition uh, on this shard from this block to this block. And if I don't trust that for some reason, then I can, like, basically challenge or I can request this like fraud proof. I can say, hey, I think, you know, the, the computation broke down here and here's like the cryptography, this, this proof to like convince you of that. And you can end up getting, uh, you can basically settle this dispute on chain. And that's the notion of this fraud proof. With the data availability, it's again a similar thing. Uh, as a node in the shard system, I don't have a full view of the whole thing. And so I have to trust other people that the shards that they claim to exist are there. Right. 
So that's where we have a data availability proof. Literally, is some data available? For example, uh, is shard 2000 on this, sorry, is block 2000 on this shard uh, that is you know, supposed to exist? Like, can someone actually give it to me if I try and download it? And then the way this works out then is like people then commit to, yes, I can serve it to you. And that's where this data availability, availability proof comes in. So hopefully that's a very condensed summary of what all this stuff is about. But basically the question is, can we, use, can we use these techniques uh, that we're developing for ETH2? Like, can we use them to enhance, say, like client technology and Bitcoin? Um, I think sort of in general, like very much so. Um, I, I think that it would be, you know, it, it, it would be a missed opportunity if like these different communities don't try and learn from each other as much as they can. So uh, we'd, again, I need to like dig into the specifics of Bitcoin like clients to say like very specifically, oh, we're gonna use fraud proofs here, data availability proofs here. Um, yeah, I mean, so just to give you an offhand example, like you could imagine like uh, essentially like did, did my script execute correctly. You could have a fraud proof for that, I suppose. Um, I, yeah. Again, you'd have to look at the specifics of like the different systems and like these different proof constructions to say, okay, you can use this here or there. Uh, I think at the very least, like these are ideas in the space that hopefully people will take and like use to inform the systems they're building. So just to follow up on that question, in terms of how these proofs are used in Ethereum and or theoretically going to be used in uh, ETH2, what are the trade-offs there, do you think? And the thing is, there's trade-offs with all of them, and you kind of have to, like, we're, we're talking about, like, very broad categories of things. So I think it's hard to have, like, very generic trade-offs uh, other than, like, very obvious stuff. So let's say specifically, like, data availability proofs, uh, sort of an early version of trying to accomplish this, like, really, like, right, like, these are, these are answers to a problem. The problem we have is that uh, I don't have every shard by design. And so I need to be able to know that I can get a shard if I need it, right? So in that case, uh, what we'll do in phase one, I believe I mentioned these phases of the ETH2 system, right? So after phase zero is phase one. Phase one actually adds these individual, these thousand shards. Uh, and in that phase, they're just data uh, that don't necessarily mean anything, but it's just blocks of data. And so then we have this problem of, okay, I need this shard block on the shard. How do I get it? Do I even know where to go? And the way it works is that we have these things called a proof of custody, which hopefully is a little self-explanatory. But essentially, you make a claim that like, hey, yes, for this length of time, I do have this block and I can give it to you. If you challenge me on this and I can't satisfy the challenge, then I lose, let's say, some state, like, right? Like maybe 16 ETH or something, like some of, some of my deposit. Um, and this is sort of, again, you have these scripted economic guarantees that I'm not lying to you. Did that answer your question? <laughs> it's, uh, that might've been a little sprawling. Okay. No, no, it's great. That's great. Yeah, you're doing and a phenomenal job. It's actually the perfect amount of explanation for our listeners. <laughs> um, and I think this is a good time to kind of go into a question from Anthony, uh, Lusardi, who actually was, uh, the head of the ETH classic, um, foundation for a while. He was asking, uh, what is the actual timeline for cross-shard communication as well as kind of like a minimal viable um, ETH2 product? Sure, okay. So how do we want to tackle this? I guess it makes more sense to talk about the minimum viable ETH2 product first. Uh, again, the huge caveat here is that these things are happening in phases. And so we'll start with phase zero, which is the speak and chain. Uh, it turns out that like sort of from day one, right, as soon as we think the beacon chain is live and stable, then we can actually get value for the existing network today, right? And so that's where this finality gadget comes in, is like we can leverage this Casper consensus to like improve the security of the preferred chain. And we can do that literally like from day one if, every, if everything looks good, right? So in terms of minimum viable products, like could be very soon depending on like what that means to you. Um, then we go so to like really quick bet scenario. Uh, I'm assuming you need to have uh, ETH, ETH from the original chain to move to the ETH2 chain for that to happen. Right, right. And so the way, the way that we're going about it is that 
essentially this beacon chain can't actually be live until like some, some conditions are met, which basically back end to like how much ETH has signaled that it wants to validate. So there's like a floor on like, we need this many validators, which in the ETH2 system means like this much ETH, right? And essentially this is done just to put a floor on like how much security we'll start out with. Like we wouldn't want to launch the chain and like be like, hey everyone, here's mainnet and it has like five validators because it would just be broken instantly, right? Um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't end all. So there's a floor there. Um, there's also like a minimum time, but that was actually more just a hat tip to like Bitcoin's birthday than anything. Oh, gotcha. The the January third, twenty twenty. Yeah, I believe it's the eleventh anniversary, right? Yeah. Uh, and that was just thrown in as like, hey, uh, it's a signal that we won't launch before then, because that would basically put us into the holidays, which none of the client teams want to like launch new blockchain in the holidays. Uh, so then it was just you know a nice sort of cute date. So do you feel good about that date? Again, that's the minimum date. <laughs> um, we, we will definitely be ready to do the minimum thing by the minimum date. <laughs> the question, well, okay. Maybe I shouldn't say that because then people are going to ask what the minimum thing is. Um, but yeah, so again, the date is actually really symbolic and like, don't take it as like, oh, if, if there aren't test nets by then, like we failed. That's not at all what it is. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So Christian has a, a bet that the beacon chain will not ship by the end of March. Uh, would you want to take Christian's side of that bet or would you want to take the other side of that bet? Let's see. I don't mean to bet against you, by the way. Nothing personal. <laughs> well, that's the end of Q1, right? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. The bet is that the beacon chain won't ship by Q, end of Q1? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, the thing yeah, is, the thing is, I, I, I have to take the other side of the bet because it's like what I do. Like I wake up every day and like work to make it happen. Right. So like, yeah, I would be deluding myself, I guess, if I thought that was impossible, <laughs> like to put it another way, like I'm, I am personally doing everything in my power to like make that happen by that point in time. Uh, and yeah, it seems achievable. Like I don't, it's not impossible. So we had Matt Odell on here for an episode. Uh, it was a Bitcoin versus Ethereum episode, and, and he's very concerned about the size of Ethereum nodes um, because uh, he thinks that Bitcoin, being able to run a Bitcoin node through Tor is really advantageous because then Bitcoin can hide from the government. Um, do you think uh, an Ethereum 2 node would be able to run through Tor? Uh, okay, so... Interesting question. Uh, as again, taking a step back, uh, the, there's the concern about the state size and the state growth of an Ethereum full node. Mm -hmm. uh, we should just note that mm -hmm. the bandwidth of the protocol doesn't directly correlate to the size of the state, right? Mm -hmm. so you could imagine a very, like, very, very like, sparse protocol in terms of bandwidth that would have no issue going over Tor and the state could still be even bigger than it is today, right? Like the, the thing is like you have data and blocks mm -hmm. and then it depends on how you interpret that data as to like how big the state gets or how small it is, right? Uh, so there's some, kind of two different axes there, which is just important to keep in mind. So uh, now that we have that in place, the question is, and again, from the people who haven't heard, like Tor is essentially this, this network that sort of exists on top of the internet. And again, it uses some fun cryptography to basically obscure how you send messages and where they're going and all this stuff um, in this really cool way that's privacy preserving, or at least uh, let's say privacy affording. It'll, it'll, you hope to add privacy. And I just make this distinction because there have been de-anonymization attacks on Tor, but that's getting us off, talk, uh, off target. So the, the original question was, uh, can we run an ETH2 node over Tor? Uh, theoretically, there's no reason why not. Right. Um, I'm actually so part of again. Uh, okay, we should we should be clear when we say Ethereum node or Ethereum two node. Uh, when you say that, because I'm just in phase zero stuff, right? I think Beacon node. And the cool thing about the Beacon node is it essentially has a constant size state. Um, it, it grows, but incredibly, incredibly, incredibly slowly. So for purpose, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's like a constant size state. I believe around 500 megabytes, right? So like very small, like 
if you wanted to, you could like ship it wherever. I don't know like current numbers on like tour bandwidth performance, right? Um, but I think it could not be a problem. I mean, especially if you're not validating and you just need to like read the blockchain, I don't think there's an issue there. Um, Do you think the bigger that, uh, I was gonna follow that up. Do you think that like the ETH the ETH two like cross chain cross changed uh shards communicating with each other do you think that whole system and ecosystem could thrive if uh in a hostile situation where you have to go to tour and get off clearnet or do you think that's kind of dependent on having access to clearnet again like um i just think these are for the most part orthogonal concerns right like uh if i'm talking to other nodes via like like if the first sort of uh, sort of, let's say, hot like chunk or something. Like, if, if the first part of my journey is encrypted in the Tor sense, uh, that's fine because then, like, I can just act like an inner node. It's just no one can really associate my traffic with me individually, right? Um, and this is what I was about to add on just a minute ago. Where there could be some issues is that there's kind of a higher synchronicity assumption between beacon nodes, at least with validator clients, uh, just because there is this notion of like a finite period of time like actions have to be performed and so then like yeah like you know if i am not concerned about keeping up with the sort of super tip of the chain uh which again because of how this finality thing works might be fine already right if there's like maybe like a couple minutes lag that's actually fine if i only care about finalized blocks then tour would be fine i don't really care about like you know i just need enough bandwidth over tour and it's fine um the issue then is like if i want to be a validator and I do need this, like, sort of, you know, performance, uh, you know, I, I need to, like, I need to have, like, a, a more dynamic or a more real-time view of the network, then there could be an issue. Again, we'd have to just actually do it and, like, try. I, I haven't, and I don't have a good sense for, like, the current state of, like, tour performance to, like, really make any guess. Are there people that you think are working on this and uh, that, that are building ETH2? Totally. I mean, we should all care about privacy and it should be on all of our minds. Um, we are, even aside from Tor, like in particular, like there's definitely conversations around the ETH2 development, which is like, you know, for, for example, like I talked about validators, like how can we like, you know, ensure validators have privacy? Um, uh, it'll, it'll get too down in the weeds, but basically there's this process called making an attestation, which a validator has to do like every six minutes, right? Each one of these epochs they have to kind of attest or they, they make a claim to like their state of the chain. And this is again, how the whole system kind of proceeds. So um, the way these attestations work, because again, we want to scale the system with lots of validators. Uh, part of the cryptography here is that we can actually take these individual attestations for groups of validators and merge them into one is a way to think about it. Uh, the way that we do this, is way more efficient if we know basically who validators are and like where they are in terms of like IP, for example, but this de-anonymizes the validator, right? Uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, we have some like very nice methods for doing some part of the protocol very well, very efficiently, uh, but it, it, it binds validator identities to say internet identities in a way that we'd like to avoid for privacy concerns, right? So that means we can't use this nice shiny tool. Um, and again, like that's just an example, like there's a number of things in the whole protocol, right, that everyone is discussing. It's like, you know, definitely a concern on everyone's mind. So I'd like to wrap this up with one question asked in two different ways. Um, can you be super bearish on Ethereum 2 de uh, development? Like what, what would an Ethereum 2 dev bear sound, sound like? Well, like what are the big concerns? Why won't Ethereum 2 make it, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. So, right. I'll put on my bear cap because, like, again, I hopefully have communicated. I don't think these are concerns that can't be solved. But uh, uh, there's a number that people usually point out. One of them is kind of what we'll call research risk. So this is just that, like, the system's really complicated. Like, maybe we're trying to do something that's never happened in the history of computer science, let's say. And so we just don't know how to do something. Um, generally for like phase zero, we're at a place I think where everyone's comfortable that like there's no more research risk. Like 
the questions in terms of how do we build a scalable blockchain and while still preserving decentralization have like generally been addressed in a way that people are pretty happy with. Uh, so research risk would be one. Um, another one is probably more on like the engineering side. Uh, so you might have heard of libp2p, which is like this networking stack we're using. Um, it's also kind of early in its life cycle and development. And so people like to complain about that. They're like, oh, libp2p is not there. It won't scale to like meet our needs with like this decentralized sharded network. You know, the bears make a lot of stuff up um, and it just keeps going and going. But uh, yeah, again, it's like, there are collaborative efforts to like make all this stuff work. And uh, yeah, like again, there, it's not that there's some like crazy huge like problem that is like, no, this is, this is impossible. Um, so yeah. You don't right, sound then, like much of a bear, which is- I'm not, 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 I'm not the right person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> let me see if I can think of, well, I, I think you'll like the... I guess another one would just be like coordinating, like coordinating, like coordination efforts, right? Like at the end of the day, like this I think is actually more of a risk than the first two things. Like the first two things people just like to complain about. Uh, but like what's actually really, what can become really a problem, right? Is like actually maintaining the community like across this transition. Because this is a very big thing. Like especially given that these systems are supposed to be decentralized, it's like, you know, if we were all like in one corporation, like I could just tell you, hey, we're doing this thing tomorrow and you would do it, right? We don't really have those same techniques to apply here. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot more uncertainty around like how this will actually play out. Um, we ultimately will somehow take the existing chain and put it into this new system. The exact details are still being worked out. I mean, I could go into some of the specifics that we think we like so far. Um, but again, basically, like, there's a risk there in terms of, like, uh, doing this in a way that, like, keeps people happy and motivated. And, uh, yeah. Do you see the, you the, see ETH, the ETH one ETH transitioning one state transitioning to ETH2? Is that kind of that, what you're that, talking about as the big difficulty? The big difficulty. Right. I mean, that, that would be like one sort of sticking point where it's like, oh, like we're going to fork the Ethereum state into this new ETH2 state. And like maybe some people don't like that or, you know, in which case that's fine. Like they'll keep mining the existing chain and maybe make some adjustments so that that's sustainable. Uh, but then now you have like another Ethereum classic or something like mm -hmm. uh, and like how much of the community does that siphon off? Like it, it's very much uh, there's just some uncertainty there. Right. Like as with any sort of hard fork, you can think of it that way. Like it's just unclear that it will necessarily work or have the support it needs, I should say. So the other half of the question is if you could provide like the most bullish case for ETH2, but I, I feel like that's actually kind of what this whole entire podcast has been. <laughs> this, yeah, this is just an ad for ETH2, huh? Um, <laughs> let's see. So the bull case I mean, the, the, the most bullish case, right, is that we, like, ship everything, like, really soon, right? Like, we have, like, really healthy test nets in the next couple months. We feel like we're ready to go and, like, launch, you know, early Q1. And then, uh, you know, there's, like, not a lot of craziness on Twitter with people upset about, like, ETH1 going away and becoming ETH2. And then, like, phases one and two, like, slot in you know, very soon after phase zero, and we have this like nice, wonderful system, uh, you know, in a very short period of time. If you were to quantify that into months of a amazing bull case scenario, what would it be? <laughs> uh, how, like, the question is like, realistically, how many months would it take to achieve this sort of, you know, uh, unrealistic bull outcome? What you just described, yes. It's, this is unrealistic, but <laughs> you try to quantify uh, that. Okay, it's August, so, uh, okay, hold on, let me just count. Let's see a year. All right. All right. One That's bullish. Two. You guys heard it here. <laughs> Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking out of your time. You did a great job explaining both for the, the well-versed and the novices in Ethereum uh, about all about ETH2. So I appreciate your time and thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me, both of you. Uh, any chance I can get to talk about ETH2, obviously I'm very excited to do. 
Um, I guess if, if anyone has any follow-up questions or something, right, you can like put links to Twitter and stuff. Um, and all yeah, what is your Twitter? Uh, just my name, R. Alex Stokes. Anywhere else that people can get information from you? You have a Medium, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a Medium blog. Um, those are really probably the main two. Cool. cool. Is it also R. Alex Stokes? Do you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. As well? You what? Can all here. Are you on GitHub as well? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. Like if, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this because I'm going to get a lot of spam now, but if you want to reach it, reach out to me, it's almost certainly the same handle on like whatever platform. <laughs> Keeps it very simple. All right, Alex, thank you once again for coming back on or coming on for the first time. Uh, you can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. Christian? Yeah, you can follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Remember, five-star reviews. Let's go, guys. Thanks, Alex. Yep, thank you.